This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'd like to uh, tell you a bit about a young man who I've worked with now for 32 years, I think, uh, Derek Paravicini. Here's a picture of Derek uh, at 26 weeks when he was born, weighing a little over... 700 grams, about one and a half pounds. So Derek could literally fit on the palm of an adult's hand. And he had a fierce fight for survival. This was 38 years ago. So the kind of therapeutic treatments for very premature infants were still quite primitive. For example, there's no no way of measuring Derek's um, oxygen saturation levels consistently. So to measure oxygen, they had to take a tiny droplet of blood from his finger rush off to the machine to measure it that took half an hour, by which time, of course, the oxygen had fluctuated again. So a little surprise, really, that Derek um, developed retinopathy of prematurity, which is when the blood vessels at the back of the eye force the retina forward. And his early development was also very delayed. Uh, He was later diagnosed with severe learning difficulties with a verbal IQ of about 57 and autism. As a child, his speech was largely echolalic, so he, rather than sort of speak with semantic understanding, he tended to repeat back whatever was said to him. But um, the very good news was he was brought up by a traditional British nanny, and she was determined that Derek was going to make the best of his life, whatever that was going to be. And she went up into the attic one day, despairing of finding something to entertain Derek. Uh, and she found this old uh, toy, really, toy keyboard, uh, which, she, which she plugged in and gave to him, and not thinking anything of it. In fact, Derek just seemed to bash this thing for ages. And then suddenly they realized that, in fact, he wasn't bashing randomly. He'd actually taught himself to play chords and then tunes just through, through a process of self-discovery. I met up with Derek when he was four years old, and he'd already built up a large repertoire of pieces. Now, he'd had no tuition. Of course, he had no visual model to guide him because Derek was totally blind. He had very small hands. He was only four years old. And as a consequence, uh, he got a very eccentric technique, as you can see from the pictures. So um, there was lots of karate chops and fists and knuckles, and even the occasional nose went down to to pick out notes he couldn't, couldn't hear. By great good fortune, that same nanny who who was responsible for Derek's upbringing pressed the button on a tape recorder um, just briefly. And so we've got a little fragment of what it was like uh, to hear Derek's playing when he was four years old. Here's a little bit. See if you you recognize it. Here's a boy who understood virtually nothing about the world around him, had really no useful language, and yet, without any 
encouragement to start with. Uh, he taught himself to, to play the piano, one of the great human accomplishments. I think the important thing about that earlier recording, though, is it, it shows us such a lot about the way that Derek's musical mind was working. For a start, he wasn't just copying what he heard, because the recording he heard was a voice and piano. So he had to rearrange that duet for a single uh, instrument, of course. Also, because he had such small hands, he had to change the spacing of the chords in order to be able to play them. And so the result, really, to me, provides evidence of genuine musical intelligence and, indeed, the beginnings of creativity. We've heard that savants are more than just mimics. And I think Derek, even in that very early stage, um, shows a genuinely creative musical mind at work. Just to show you a bit about Derek uh, today, he's now aged 38. I think he's been to California about six times now. So he's very cross he's not here today, I can tell you, um, because he, although he doesn't enjoy 12 hours on a plane, he does enjoy uh, making music when he lands. But he now has his own jazz quartet. And I think he, music for him is so much more than just a technical exercise. It, it's genuinely a social and emotionally fulfilling activity. It's incredibly important for his identity and self-esteem. If you ask Derek what he does, he says, I'm a pianist. Um, it's important for friendship, for shared feelings, and even for humor. So here's Derek um, playing today. If I ask you to guess the piece initially, uh, you might be wrong. So there's a warning. This is Derek being witty. see how Derek's evolved, hopefully, in the intervening 32 years. So what, what kick-started Derek's musical learning, and how, how is it he can do what he does, and indeed with Leslie Lemke as well? And it's the same unusual skill as all musical savants, and indeed all musical prodigies rely on, which is universal absolute pitch. Now, absolute pitch is the ability to reproduce and to recognize pitches, not only in music, but in any, any environmental sound. And it starts very early. It's gen generally in place by 24 months. It's interesting seeing that young um, Indian drummer. I've certainly seen young blind children aged 12 months start to play the piano. By 18 months, uh, absolute pitches in place, and they're playing pieces in the right key. So if these abilities are going to start, they're going to start very early. So absolute pitch is very rare in Western populations as a whole, about 0.01%. Doing a kind of meta-analysis of all the literature I can find, plus all the blind children I've worked with, which is hundreds over the years, 
something like 45% of those who are born blind or who lose their sight early on go on to develop absolute pitch. Among partially sighted children, it's around 11%, and around those on the autism spectrum, around 8%. So you can see there's something massively different going on with a fair proportion of these children. What's interesting is about whether it's genetic or environmental is something one can debate, because there's nothing genetic about Derek's uh, musicality. I think it's the fact he was born blind that made the structural differences, the way his brain developed. In fact, that's it. I think it's largely to do with his exceptional early cognitive environments that blindness or visual impairment and autism create. Presumably, there must be a genetic component too, because not all blind children develop AP. But what it is, it's a focus on absolute perceptual qualities of things for their own sake that seems to make the difference. So I'll play you... One, one wonderful thing about Derek is he's, he loves psychological experiments. He never gets bored. Um, I, I do... There's one particular experiment. I'm going to play you a bit of it, where I play him 120 different chords, um, which would drive anyone crazy and ask him to play them back. Um, most people freak out after about 20 of these things. And after the end of a... I remember the end of a hard days of, of uh, analyze, uh, taking data from Derek, He'd say, can we do the chords again tomorrow, madam? I said, wow, Derek. <laughs> right. Um, so here, um, here's a sample of those 120 chords. Uh, if there's someone with absolute pitch in the audience, you might be able to pick out the notes. But this is the only information Derek got. And I guess most people wouldn't be able to tell you how many notes are in each chord, let alone what notes were being played. Here's a sample of them. Notes were in the last one? Uh, I wouldn't have a clue. There were nine, in fact. Here's the chords, and here's Derek's responses. This is me. This is Derek. This is me and Derek. We're on the second line. Derek does, as you might pick up, he actually adds notes in, typically. Uh, He very rarely misses them out. So here are Derek's stats from the 120 chords with four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine notes. You can see he got all the four-note chords absolutely right. Um, He got about 96% of the five notes and so on, down to about 93% uh, at the nine notes. In fact, um, it was interesting seeing the bit from 60 Minutes because Leslie Stahl interviewed Derek um, at some length and got him to play 10-note chords, and he was still about 92%, which is amazing when you think of the sheer motor programming to get 10 fingers over the right notes at the right time is extraordinary. But, again, interestingly, it's not this sort of myth of savants as kind of superhuman beings that just don't conform to the rules that the rest of us play by. For example, Derek did much better with tonal chords than what you might call non-tonal. In other words, standard Western tonality Derek was better at. He was also more successful from the bottom of the chords up. So in other words, he was listening more structurally. Uh, Most of us, when we listen to music, we tend to hear the melody line. Skillful musicians tend to hear from the bass line up because that's telling them structure. 
So in other words, Derek was listening with musical intelligence. He wasn't just a perceptual machine that could copy. And if, in fact, if we look at how Derek did compared with other savants and with expert, what you might call neurotypical musicians with absolute pitch, you can see, in fact, there is a fairly continuous distribution. Derek's at the top, the top blue line with S. The other savants are in solid lines, and then the neurotypical musicians with absolute pitch are in the dotted lines. And I'm quite sure if I found enough subjects, there'd be quite a continuous distribution. So in other words, the savants are using the same strategies as the, as the skillful, trained musicians. So as I say, it, it suggests that these people live, exist on a continuum, and that both use the same structurally-based listening strategies. Right, another study now, uh, long-term memory is a feature of all musical savants, as Darrell said. And sometimes this is said to be eidetic or photographic memory. Is that absolutely, is that in fact true? Right, here's another mean test that people think you must be mad doing this. So I composed a special, special new piece of music for Derek to learn. You have to compose something, because if he's heard it, then he's probably already remembered it. And... Um, all he did was to hear it and play it back. So imagine that you're sitting down at the piano, you haven't got the music in front of you, and you hear this. do you reckon you'd be able to play? Well, I'll show you what Derek did in a minute. Just to say this was quite a long-term study over four years. We did 26 sessions with increasingly long breaks between two days in the first case and two years in the last one. And in each session after the first, Derek tried to play whatever he'd remember. He then listened to Chromatic Blues again, uh, attempted to play once more, and then listened once more to Chromatic Blues. So his very first attempt, he just heard exactly what you've heard. And in fact, he got about 30% of it right. Here was his... Um Of course, this shows, you know, one of the real dangers, I think, of a lot of savant studies is that unless you do a pretty systematic analysis, it's terribly hard to know. In other words, if I just played that piece in a concert, 
this so, so often happens, people play Derek something in a, in a live situation. He then plays it back. And of course, no one knows if he's got it exactly right or not, because we haven't got Derek's ear. So I think a lot of savant myths are built on slightly dubious um, anecdotes, shall we say. So what did Derek do? What was he going on there? Well, it was evidently beyond the capacity of his working memory, but he couldn't help but produce something that made musical sense. In other words, he's using music like a natural language. In the same way, if we recall a story, we don't get every note right, but we get the overall structure right, we get the meaning right. And that's what Derek did. He got the feel of the music right, he got the overall structure right, and he got some of the detail right. But it wasn't completely right. So again, yet again, we see creativity coming in. Derek had to be musically creative in order to make ends meet. So what did he do? Well, he used the, frag- the musical fragments in a different order. In order to make them fit, he had to transform them in real time. And he introduced stock phrases from sort of rhythm and blues style, from Count Basie, from a blues turnaround and so on. So in other words, Derek's functioning exactly like a skilled jazz musician would function in that context. So in fact, it's anything but this kind of photographic memory. It's a characteristic of, of neurotypical recall. And in fact, here's a comparison with uh, Sasha, who was an expert neurotypical jazz pianist with absolute pitch, whom we gave the same test to. And you can see, yeah, Derek, Derek outperforms him after the initial bursts. But essentially, Sasha is doing you know, not, not, not badly at all, much better than most, most of us could do. And analysis shows he was using very similar strategies to Derek. You can see that Sasha gave up long before Derek. Derek carried on for another two years. In fact, occasionally now he'll say, can I do chromatic blues? I don't want to say, no, no, no. Right, last of all, very often um, I get asked, and Derek gets asked, what about modern music, this problem, atonal music, it's sometimes called. Now, atonal music was introduced by Schoenberg, amongst others, at the beginning, well, first half of the 20th century, I suppose. And it consciously avoids traditional musical grammar, syntax, and rules. And most listeners report finding atonal music discordant. In other words, it sounds like there are mistakes in it. And it's very difficult to remember. Schoenberg said all he wanted was for people to whistle his tunes in the street, but they (laughs) never got it. In fact, Tchaikovsky annoyed him particularly because people would whistle Tchaikovsky's tunes. (laughs) So how did Derek get on? Well, I gave him a bit of Schoenberg's first atonal masterpiece, it's called, uh, to, to, to try and play. So again, if you close your eyes and just pretend to be Derek, this is what he heard. Here's a a young man who can hit nine-note chords with 93% accuracy. He couldn't do it. Completely couldn't do it. Here's the original first phrase. Here's Derek. see 
even his absolute pitch, his flawless absolute pitch, was confused when there's a lack of background syntax and rules. I found quite extraordinary. I thought I had to check the equipment. I thought, Derek, you've got the first note wrong. I've never heard him make a mistake like that. So in other words, the, the atonal, the, the, the music without rules, even confused Derek's perception. Just a time to play you a little bit of what happened a week later. I asked him to play the week later. And the result, he'd stepped back from Schoenberg into the world of Wagner. It's extraordinary. Here's a little bit of it. So in other words, Derek had corrected the wrong notes. <laughs> so in conclusion, um, Derek and other savants, I've worked with great pleasure working with about six prodigious savants, have an unusual degree of expertise, but his engagement appears to be qualitatively similar to neurotypical musicians with absolute pitch. In other words, it seems to be a matter of degree rather than a fundamental difference. And I'd like to think that perhaps we'll gain more insights about neurotypicality by looking, as it were, the opposite way around. We tend to view savants from the view of neurotypical, of sort of mean-based psychological tests. Whereas, in fact, if we look at the world of the savants and see what light can they shed on all of us, we might be in a stronger position in some ways. And ultimately, I think we're all part of the same continuum of human neurodiversity. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.